0: Welcome to another episode of the Reformation Roundtable podcast. My name is Joe Stout, and this podcast is a ministry of Christ Covenant Church in Lewis County, Washington. During each episode, you will discover the sermons, exhortations, discussions, and interviews from our various weekly gatherings. Christ Covenant Church is a historically reformed and evangelical church that has been serving the greater Centralia Chehalis area since May of 2021. We meet for worship each Lord's Day to sing psalms and hymns, confess our historic faith, hear the word faithfully proclaimed, and celebrate together the Lord's Supper. Throughout the week, we go out into the world to build the kingdom of Christ right here in Lewis County. If this sounds like a vision for you, we would love to have you join us. Head on over to lewiscounty.church, that is lewiscounty.church, where you will find a calendar of events, as well as current times and locations for worship. Please enjoy the following audio.
1: And all God's people said, Let us rise and worship the triune God. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And also to you. From Psalm 72. Give the king thy judgments, O God.
0: And thy righteousness unto the king's son.
1: He shall judge thy people with righteousness. And thy poor with judgment. The mountains shall bring peace to the people. And the little hills by righteousness. He shall judge the poor of the people. He shall save the. They shall fear thee as long as the sun and moon endure throughout all generations.
0: He shall come down like rain upon the mown grass, as showers that water the earth.
1: In his days shall the righteous flourish. And
0: abundance of peace so long as the moon endureth.
1: So lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Let's pray. O Lord, be favorable unto the poor, and heal the souls of the needy. That we who trust not in our own strength, and hopefully entreat thy mercy, may through poverty of spirit obtain the fullness of heavenly blessing. Wherefore we say, Glory be to the Father, the King Eternal, who giveth his judgment unto the King his Son. Glory be to the Son, the true King Solomon, who maketh peace in all his kingdom. Glory be to the Holy Ghost, who is the peace of all them who fight for Solomon, and serve him here below and who will be yet more fully the peace of them that reign with him in heaven. As it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. And amen. Amen. As we continue to explain the biblical basis for our worship service, we come this morning to what uh, we might call the structure or outline of our uh, liturgy. This is what you have uh, in the bulletin. Uh, But first, what exactly is a liturgy? Uh, The word liturgy comes from this Greek word, liturgia, and it signifies a formal service or work of public ministry. In Luke 1.23, we read that Zecharias the priest performed a ministry, a liturgias, in the temple. In Hebrews 8.6, we are told that Jesus hath obtained a more excellent ministry, liturgias, by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant. So what we call the liturgy is our formal and public service to God, wherein we minister to Him and He ministers to us. This reciprocal relationship is what we call a covenant renewal. Anytime that God makes a covenant, He takes hold of something, separates it, and then transforms it into something new. We see this pattern everywhere, especially in the creation of man. God takes hold of the dust, separates it from the ground, breathes life into what he has formed, and thus man is created. This pattern then repeats with the creation of the first marriage covenant. God takes hold of Adam, separates a rib from his body, forms the woman, and then both are reunited, transformed as husband and wife. This order of actions, or liturgy, is how God takes the world from one degree of glory to another. It is how Paul can say in 2 Corinthians 4.16, Though our outward man is wasting away, our inward man is being renewed day by day. When we renew our covenant with God every Lord's Day, Christ makes us new. In Christ, we are a new creation— And every week we should look a little bit more like Jesus because of what takes place here. God takes hold of us. He calls us into his presence. He separates us from the world and divides us by his word. He then puts us back together and dines with us as a transformed people. And then he sends us back into the world as renewed men and women to exercise dominion for his glory. This is what our liturgy is all about, and it is how God renews his covenant with his people. This reminds us of our need to confess our sins, so as you are able, let us kneel before the Lord. Father, we confess all of these sins to you in Jesus' name, and amen. Amen. Let us rise for the assurance of God's pardon. The enemies of God are brought down and fallen. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is God's mercy towards them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Saints of Christ's covenant church, because you have confessed your sins holding nothing back, it is my joy to announce to you that your sins are forgiven through Christ.
0: Thanks be to God.
1: The sermon text this morning is from Philippians chapter 1, verses 18 to 26. These are the words of God. What then, notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. For I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and my hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness as always, so now also. Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor. Yet what I shall choose I know not. For I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. And having this confidence, I know that I shall abide and continue with you all for your furtherance and joy of faith, that your rejoicing may be more abundant in Jesus Christ for me by my coming to you again. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the comfort of Holy Scripture. And we ask now that as your word is preached, we would receive it by faith, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God. For we ask this in Jesus' name, and amen. Amen. Well, last week we saw uh, in our text, as we are continuing to work through Philippians, uh, that God sometimes builds his kingdom uh, using, as uh, John Calvin says, uh, wicked and depraved instruments. God sometimes builds his kingdom using wicked and depraved instruments. Uh, That is to say, God sometimes uses uh, sinful, fallible preachers with sinful and mixed motives to accomplish a singular and infallible purpose. If you remember uh, the historical context of uh, this book, uh, Paul is in prison in what city? Rome. Rome. Where's Frank? Oh, there you Rome, Frank. Rome. Uh, he is waiting for his uh, trial, and who is the Caesar at this time, Frank? Who is the Caesar at this time? I'm sorry, I was Oh, okay, there we go. So, someone, someone help Frank out. Nero. Nero. Oh, there we go. Okay. I'm just giving Frank a hard time. Uh, so uh, Paul, is, Paul is in Rome, he's waiting uh, for his trial, he's going to stand before the most powerful man in the empire, uh, Nero. And uh, there are certain men who have become bold in their preaching of Christ, but they are preaching, we saw, out of envy and strife, it says, seeking to add afflictions to Paul's chains. And yet, uh, despite this evil intent, Paul is rejoicing. He's rejoicing because the gospel is being preached, Christ is being made known throughout the empire, even, as we'll find at the end of this book, amongst Nero's household. So there are uh, Christians in, I don't know, Nero's cabinet, so to speak. Uh, So what these sinful men intend for evil or intend for their own selfish ambition, God actually uses to extend his kingdom. Uh, So that's the context, and we pick up this morning in verses 18 to 26, and uh, having already looked at what uh, motivates and drives other preachers, here we get a glimpse at what drives and motivates Paul. What is the internal motivation of the apostle? Well, you'll notice that our passage this morning begins and ends with joy. In verse 18, Paul rejoices because Christ is preached. And in verse 26, Paul wants the Philippians to rejoice as well. The whole purpose of Paul's ministry is the joy of Christians. Pastors are in the business of serious joy. That is our aim as ministers of the God who is joy. We might say that if the Apostle John was the apostle of love, as some call him, Paul is the apostle of joy. Joy is a constant theme in Paul's letters, with Philippians being the most joy-filled letter of them all. Philippians is a sort of uh, Christian school for joy. Have you ever wondered how Paul could say things like, rejoice always, and again I say rejoice, and actually do it? We like this text, but this is very hard to do. It's hard uh, to rejoice always, and again I say rejoice. Well, here in our text, we come to uh, what I believe is the source, the fountain, the wellspring from which joy is constantly overflowing in the apostle. And if we can discover this source and trace its depths, perhaps joy could overflow in us as well. Isn't that what you want? To be joyful always. So what is this fountain of joy. That's the the question I set before us this morning. Uh, So let's work through our text, and uh, we'll start in verse uh, 19. Verses 19 and 20, Paul says this, For I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer, and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and my hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as always, so now also, Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. So Paul begins here uh, by saying that the prayers of the Philippian church uh, are one of the means that God is using to bring about Paul's salvation. Think about that. The prayers of the Philippians are one of God's means for Paul's salvation. That's, That's what the text says. Uh, Now, there is debate here about whether salvation refers to Paul just being released from prison or if it refers to his uh, kind of eternal salvation. It's also possible uh, some see both of these things uh, as in view. But given the verses that follow and then the mention here of the supply of the spirit of Jesus Christ, uh, I think eternal salvation is in the foreground here. That is the primary focus. And so we could say the sense of this verse is that God uses the prayers of the church to build up the faith of its ministers so that they finish their race with joy. Paul says uh, something similar to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20. Uh, Seeing the suffering ahead of him, Paul says, But none of these things move me, neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy. And the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. So Paul needs the prayers of uh, the church to give him boldness to testify. And if you read Paul's other letters, you will notice that he often asks the churches to pray for him. So if the Apostle Paul needs prayer... Uh, you need prayer too. Uh, All of us are probably a lot less holy than Paul was, and Paul is constantly asking other people, Christians, regular Christians who swing a hammer for a living or uh, mothers at home, he's asking these normal people to pray for him, and that is the means that God is going to use to further the gospel and bring about Paul's ultimate perseverance in the faith. I'll give you a couple other examples of this. Uh, One is in Romans 15. He says, Now I beseech you, brethren, for the Lord Jesus Christ's sake and for the love of the Spirit, that ye strive together with me in your prayers to God for me, that I may be delivered from them that do not believe in Judea. Uh, Likewise, in Ephesians 6, he says, Pray for me, that utterance may be given unto me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel For which I am an ambassador in chains, that therein I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. So apostles need prayer. Preachers need prayer just like everyone else. And in fact, uh, Paul needs more prayer, we might say, because he's going to face a lot more opposition. He's going to be persecuted everywhere he goes. He is engaging in spiritual warfare on the front lines. And so Paul tells these Philippians that he is confident that through their prayers and the supply of the Holy Spirit, he will attain unto salvation. So your prayers are important. They are necessary. There's a reason why we pray so much and for so long in the worship service. Uh, kids, bonus bonus question for you children. Uh, how many prayers get prayed in our worship service? I don't actually know the answer to this question because there are so many. Small ones, long ones, uh, medium-sized ones. I would, I would love to know. I will, give you, I will buy you a very large candy bar of your own choosing if you can tell me accurately how many prayers there are in our worship service. Okay, tell me after, after the service. Or even uh, next Sunday, that's fine as well. All right, how, how did I get onto that candy? Uh, pr- prayers are important. Because uh, this is how we wrestle, not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers of darkness. That's what is happening in the worship service. Just before I uh, read the sermon text, both Joe and I were preaching, and that is our communal church militant warfare against all of the nonsense that is happening out there. So prayer's a big deal. Uh, we see also in these verses, verses 19 and 20, Some famous passages, some echoes of famous passages in the Old Testament. Words that were spoken by a man who, like Paul, suffered immensely in the body. So uh, if you have the text before you, look at verses 19 and 20 and think, are there any allusions, any echoes that you can see here in verses 19 to 20 that come from the Old Testament? Can you guess what those passages might be? Well, who was the most righteous sufferer in the Old Testament? Who would we say? Job. Job. Job, And children, this is the chocolate question this morning. So if you want your chocolate, who's the most righteous sufferer in the Old Testament? It was Job. Job. Yes, Job. Job is a long book. There are 42 chapters in it, and right at the center of this book, which in Hebrew, the center of the book is often where they kind of hinge their argument, okay? So this is a really important part of the book, Job 19, verses 25 to 27, and as I read this, see if you can just note some of the parallels with our passage. Job says this, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at the last day on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another, how my heart yearns within me. This is one of the most explicit references in the Old Testament to the resurrection of the body. And it was this hope of future resurrection, of seeing God in the flesh, that sustained Job through his sufferings. And so Paul, who knew scripture better than anyone else, almost certainly has this text in mind as he finds himself in a very similar situation to Job. Who was Job? Job was an Edomite king. He's a Gentile and he's a king. Job's fellow counselors start to turn on him when God strikes him down and they want Job to fall on his sword. They want Job to take the blame. They want him to be the scapegoat for all of the bad things happening in the economy. And in a similar way, uh, Paul finds himself in prison with competing narratives going around about him. Fellow preachers are circling like vultures, gunning to take his position. And while there are afflictions in Paul's body and afflictions in his heart from fellow brethren, Paul shares the same hope as Job that my Redeemer lives, that this shall turn to my salvation, that in my flesh I shall see God, that Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. Mine eyes shall behold him and not another, how my heart yearns within me. Remember in our first sermon, that Greek word we learned, splunk noise, him desiring in the bowels of Jesus Christ. It was the same Concept: How my heart yearns within me. This is the language of longing in the bowels of Jesus Christ. So what kept Job going and what kept Paul going was hope in the resurrection. And this is made even more clear by a direct quote in verse 19 from another place in Job. So in verse 19, he actually quotes something out of Job 13. Job 13, 15 to 16 says this, Though he slay me, he referring to God, though God slay me, yet will I trust in him. He also shall be my salvation, for an hypocrite shall not come before him. Think about that. That's words of Job and Paul. There's these hypocritical preachers coming around, and, and this is the verse that he alludes to, but you have to go, go look it up to see the full context. Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. He also shall be my salvation, for an hypocrite shall not come before him. So that line, he also shall be my salvation, is actually identical in uh, the Greek Septuagint, that's the the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, uh, to what Paul says here in our text. This shall turn to my salvation. Word for word, uh, same in Greek. And, And so Paul is drawing on Job as he suffers this Roman imprisonment. And he is finding nourishment, encouragement, joy in the scriptures. And this is one of the streams that supplies Paul's fountain of joy. Paul knew that though God slay him, he also will be his salvation. The same God who lays Paul in the dust in a Roman prison shall also raise him up. Few men have ever suffered like Job Paul, And yet we find in them this shared flame of hope, hope in God, and more specifically hope in the resurrection of the dead. Do we have this same hope? This is the fountain. This is the fountain of Paul's overflowing joy, and he punctuates this in the famous words of the next verse. Verse 21 says, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's famous words, we probably have heard these before, Uh, but what does this mean? What does it mean to live is Christ? It's kind of an odd way to say it. Well, think about it this way. What is the difference between a dead body and a living body? Uh, The smell, probably, for one. Uh, But uh, the most obvious thing is that one moves and one does not. Living things move, dead things don't move. Uh, We could say uh, motion or movement is the essential nature of life. And so uh, to live is Christ means that Christ is the one who moves you. The spirit of Christ dwells within you. Christ animates you. This is why James can say in James 2.26, For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also or how Paul can say in Galatians 2:20 I have been crucified with Christ it is no longer I who live but Christ lives in me and the life which I now live in the flesh I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me so when Paul says for to me to live is Christ he means that the thing that gets him out of bed every morning is Jesus The thing that keeps Paul preaching, despite knowing he's going to be persecuted, he's going to be stoned, he's going to be imprisoned, there's constant danger everywhere he goes, the thing that keeps him moving is Jesus. Jesus moved Paul. And so long as Paul lives, Jesus will be the animating principle and reason for everything. And so we should ask ourselves this morning, what is moving us? For the world, they say, by their actions, to live is mammon, to live is money, to live is do whatever I want. Those are the things that move the world, that, as they say, money makes the world go round. But this should not be so for the Christian. So what moves you? Can you say with the Apostle that to live is Christ, or are there many other competing principles of motion within you? Uh, Thomas Aquinas says, It is by his affections that man is moved towards anything. It is by his affections that man is moved towards anything. And so what affections are moving you? Paul tells us what his affections are. Colossians 3, 2-4 says this, Set your affections on things above, not on things on the earth. For you are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. So bringing this all together, how do you live to Christ? You set your affections above. You set your Affections on heavenly things. And when you do this, it puts everything here below into perspective, even and especially death. This is how Paul can say in the next breath that to die is gain. For the Christian who has already been baptized into Christ's death, death changes from this mortal enemy, this fearful thing, to are kind of doorkeeper, welcoming us into glory. When you've already died and died in Christ, you cannot ever die again. This is why baptism is such a big deal. You're dying. And having already died, you cannot ever die again. Your body may go into the ground, but in the moment of your death, when you close your eyes your person, your consciousness, your soul, you, enter immediately into the presence of God. That communion you share with God right now, if you are a Christian, will be unbroken. This is why Jesus can say, I came to give you eternal life, and that eternal life has begun even now. So Paul gives us in These verses, one of the great insights into what uh, theologians call the intermediate state, or what is more commonly known as going to heaven when you die. Verses 22 to 24 are a great uh, proof text for this reality. I was just uh, working through uh, some of the Roman Catholic uh, catechism and uh, They talk about limbo. They talk about purgatory. They talk about these other places that you go when you die based on the different kinds of sins you may have committed. And as Protestants, we deny the existence of such places as limbo and purgatory. And the reason why we do that is actually because of of this text. This is one of the texts right here that we would point to. Uh, So verses 22 to 24. But if I live in the flesh... This is the fruit of my labor, yet what I shall choose I know not, for I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. The key phrase there is to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. It is far better to be rid of this mortal body and to be in heaven with Christ. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 6 to 8, so we are always confident knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well pleased rather, to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. So you notice there's a real tension we should all feel between being at home in this body. Versus being out of the body, but present with the Lord. And here in our Philippians text, Paul says it's far better to depart and to be with Christ out of the body. However, remember Job. This is not Paul's ultimate hope. This is why theologians call heaven that place where your body is down here, your soul is with Christ in heaven. We call that the intermediate state, meaning that's not your final destination. It's the place you are actually passing through. Because being out of your body in heaven is temporary. The final destination of all men is the resurrection of the body, either a resurrection unto eternal life in the new heavens and the new earth, or resurrection unto judgment and being cast into the lake of fire. So as much as it is better to depart this body and be with Christ, it is even better to receive your resurrection body, and as Job says, in my flesh I shall see God. To live in this body is to live for Christ, and to depart from this body is to be with Christ in heaven, that intermediate state. But the final destination and the focus of Paul's hope is the resurrection of the body on the last day, when heaven and earth are reunited forever. That is the theology in the background here. And it creates in Paul a certain tension. A tension we see in these verses between his love for God and his love for the Philippians. A tension between kingdom work and kingdom rest. A tension between fruitful labor for Christ versus departing to be with Christ. This is the kind of holy tension that God's love should create in you. So do we feel this? Do you feel pulled in one direction to be free from this this valley of tears? From... uh, the sorrow and the death and to finally just have some rest. Don't you want that? Life is stressful, life is hard and your body breaks down and it starts falling apart and we want to depart and be with Christ. And yet you feel at the same time this desire to remain. You see one another in this room. You see, I see my my little sons. And I would like to stay, maybe not for my sake, but at least for theirs. And the older you get, the more uh, pronounced this becomes. Do you feel that tension? Are you torn between the two? Th- that's kind of the closest thing that um, we can probably experience to what Paul is experiencing. Paul's Paul loves the Philippians a lot. You think about how much he loves God, and then the logic of uh, why he's going to stay in the body. He really loves these Philippians. He really wants to finish his course with joy. None of us knows when God will call us home. But while we are here, God wants you to run your race with joy. He wants you to magnify Christ, whether by life or by death. And so Paul says this in these final verses, verses 25 to 26. And having this confidence, I know that I shall abide and continue with you all for your furtherance and joy of faith, that your rejoicing may be more abundant in Jesus Christ for me by my coming to you again. Why does Paul resolve to remain in the body? For the Philippians' joy. This is someone serious about joy. He says, in effect, as much as I would love to see Christ, which is far better, I want to get out of this Roman prison and come and see you again. The logic of the apostle runs something like this. It is far better to be with Christ, but we will be with Christ in glory forever. And in that sense, heaven can wait. In the scope of eternity, 80 years is the blink of an eye. And so the time that Paul has there is incredibly brief. And this is his only opportunity to bring other people with him. This is your only opportunity. And so use whatever time God has given you here such that you will have good stories to tell around that heavenly bonfire in the new heavens and new earth. Don't get to heaven without any good stories to tell. However hard and impossible things might seem and really be in the moment, look ahead to when you can look back and tell the story of how God delivered you, how he came through, how he provided at the last Minute, how your faith grew strong despite insurmountable odds. Don't get to heaven without any good stories to tell. I'll close with this. If you are not a Christian, or if you are unsure about where you're going to go when you die, hear this simple truth Christ died for sinners, and he rose again so that all who trust in him can be forgiven and live with him in his kingdom forever. That is the Christian hope. When you are baptized, life suddenly becomes a win-win. You're alive, that's fruitful labor and joy. You die, you enter glory, where he wipes away every tear from our eyes. That is the Christian hope. And I invite us to make that our hope as well. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, these are high words. They are high and hard words to do. To live is Christ and to die is gain. And I ask that you would impress upon us as your people a, a renewed resolve to live for Christ. That all that we do would be done in love that we would indeed have fruitful labor, that our labor would not be in vain. And God, for those of us who see death as approaching, or for those of us who are afraid of death, or at least afraid of the pain that might come with our inevitable death, I ask that you would resolve in us a certain hope, a certain joy, and this confidence that Paul had and that Job had that my Redeemer lives. And I will stand in a resurrected body and my eyes shall see Him. Make our heart to yearn for this. For we ask this in Jesus' name. And amen. amen. This table before us is a foretaste of heaven. Although these humble elements of bread and wine are not in themselves a glorious feast, what they communicate to us by grace is the most glorious feast of all, that wedding supper of the Lamb. In Revelation, Christ calls himself the Alpha and the Omega, and so we have before us the food of both beginning and end, bread to start the day and wine to consummate it, bread that is the beginning of the kingdom and wine that is the consummation of it. Here is Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, And so come and welcome to Jesus Christ. The charge is this. Whatever uh, troubles are in front of you right now, look ahead to when you will be sitting around that uh, heavenly bonfire, as I called it, uh, when you share stories together in the kingdom. And do right now what will make for a Christ-exalting story later. Don't get to heaven without a good story to tell. Uh, Receive now the benediction.